This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and UpSnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. My mama told me when I was young, we're almost superstars. She pulled my hair with my lipstick on, in the glass of purple Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking time out of your day once again to join me here on my show, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. We're live with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership is 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, I'm joined by yet another phenomenal stellar guest. This was... uh an interview that I was really hoping to uh, be granted, and I'm so gracious for this. My guest today is Don Miguel Ruiz, and uh, Jr., I should emphasize. And so I'm just going to, as I always do before I turn it over to unscripted dialogue, I'm just going to plug a little bit about my guest. So who is Don Miguel Ruiz? Well, Don is a Naguel, a Toltec master of transformation. He is a direct descendant of the Toltecs of the Eagle Knight lineage and is the son of Don Miguel Ruiz. By combining the wisdom of his family's traditions with the personal knowledge gained from his own personal journey, he now helps others realize their own path to personal freedom. When he was 14 years old, Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. apprenticed to his father and his grandmother to learn how they manifested their intent to heal people, both physically and spiritually. When he reached his mid-twenties, after 10 years of apprenticeship, his father intensified his training. The training culminated one day when Don Miguel Ruiz Sr. sent his eldest son out into the world saying, Find your way out. Go home and master death by becoming alive. Don Miguel Jr. has applied the lessons learned from his father and grandmother to to define and enjoy his own personal freedom while achieving peace with all of creation. As an Aguel, Miguel Jr. is finally ready to pass along the wisdom and the tools of his family's traditions. Along with his father and brothers, Don Jose Ruiz, Don Miguel Jr. leads workshops, retreats, and power journeys to help others to achieve their own personal freedom and optimal physical and spiritual health. He also hosts a successful weekly internet radio show, The Way of the Desert. Books include The Five Levels of Attachment, Toltec Wisdom for the Modern World and Living a Life of Awareness, Daily Meditations, and the Mastery of Self and the Fifth Agreement. So, wow, Miguel, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us here, myself and the listeners. How are you? I'm doing good, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm better now that we're actually connected. I'm just so grateful to have you join us. You're a favorite amongst many of us here. Oh, thank Uh, you. Yes, we have all your books and... um, you know, for those of us, and this this network itself and my show, it's all premised on personal development and personal growth, both, uh, you know, in the spiritual world as well as in the professional world. So this really speaks to me and I know it's going to resonate with all of our listeners. So I just want to maybe start, uh, Miguel, by first asking, you know, I, clearly we understand from what I just read and what I plugged about your bio there, uh, this, this is family inherent. This goes back in uh, time. And this is something that is held very near and dear and sacred to your family's heart. But did you know, did you know personally, uh, that this was your calling or did you feel it was more so passed down to you? Well, uh, it's a combination of both really. It's, uh, well, first things first, like that was a long intro, so I have to start editing the intro. <laughs> 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 that was like, but, um, no, it, it's, it's basically a combination of, my loving my family, you know, because, you know, when you're young, you listen because you love, you know, I, I love my grandmother, I love my gra- my father, I love my grandpa, and they're the ones who shared the tradition with me. And when I was young, it was something that was just part of the family, you know, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, we used to go every Sunday to listen to my grandmother teach. And even though I was uh, apprenticing with them, you know, I didn't really feel like a calling when I was young or even in my 20s. 
It felt something that was part of the family. It was part of, uh, you know, the, the opportunity I had to be a part of this family. So I listened because of that. And then, you know, I rebelled against the tradition, like every my dad did as well. My grandmother did as well. It's apparently a family tradition in of itself. <laughs> trying to forge our own way in life, trying to, you know, basically, you know, I, I, I grew up with juxtapositions in my life. I grew up being the grandson of a faith healer and the, and the son of a neurosurgeon and the son of a, of a dentist and a nephew to neurosurgeons, oncologists, doctors. So you have the homeopathic spiritual side of my grandmother and you have the Western medicine side of my, of my, my dad and his generation. And I'm a bit of both, as well as in school. I was academ- academia at school and spirituality at home. I, I went to school in Tijuana, but I lived in San Diego, so I crossed the border every day to go to school in Tijuana. So I got used to juxtapositions and dualities. Mm-hmm. And part of listening to my family's tradition was part of that duality. It's just It was part of life. When it became a calling, I would say it happened... A few years after I graduated college, you know, the bubble burst when you graduate from college, you're no longer working for a grade. You know, most of the information up to that point, I saw it like something that belonged in a museum or in a textbook. That's how a student sees it. You know, the the family tradition belonged in a textbook or a museum. What does that have to do with my life? Mm -hmm. And then the bubble burst. uh, Life happened. You're working for life, events, actions, consequences, uh, romances, bills, rents, things like that happen. And all of a sudden, a moment in my life where, you know, a breakup happened. And uh, when the thing about a breakup is it's when the illusion ends and reality sits in and you realize that you're, you're something, you're pretending to be something you're not. And all of a sudden, all my family's teachings really became relevant. It became something that pertained to my life. For example, the four agreements came out in 1997. And when I began to read the book, I read three chapters into it. And by somewhere in the third chapter, I put it down because it was my dad telling me what to do all over again. Mm-hmm. And I was in college and that's how I saw it. And then I, like during that time when I was telling you, uh, I picked up the book again. Uh, I, in 97, I was 21 years old. When I picked it up again, I was 26, 27. And um, it resonated with me. And my family's teachings resonated with me. All of a sudden, I was able to put things into my own words because I was experiencing them. It wasn't something in a textbook. It wasn't something in a museum. It was reflecting my life and my experiences. And I translated it. I translated the language into a language that I could understand. You know, My father taught me through logic. He taught my brother through spirituality, my other brother through poker. And we, we, he adapted the stories and the lessons to our interests. So that's when it became a calling with me because I understood it. It wasn't something that, you know, I can teach the teachings like a, like a parrot and repeat word verbatim, mm-hmm. but there's no soul when that happens. It's just, you know, like that's that image of Ferris Bueller's teacher, Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> you know, it, it'll, it'll have that feeling. It'll feel frozen. It won't have any heart. Right. What makes it have heart is that I'm speaking for my own life. I only teach what I know. I don't touch anything that I don't know. I only touch what I understand. And what I understand is that these teachings are here to help us. And the way I see it is that it, it's here to help us heal from the wounds of conditional love and embrace ourselves with unconditional love. You know, conditional love left such scars in our life mm-hmm. that we forgot who we are. So the work I do in my point of view is exactly that, to heal from those wounds and to find our own personal freedom in loving ourselves just the way we are. So that's to me in a nutshell, that's when the, when the calling came and that came somewhere in my thirties. Beautiful. Beautiful, Miguel. I appreciate you. You, you so eloquently described all that for us and the listeners. So thank you for that. You know, it's not uncommon when I talk to, uh, my guests, we often talk about polarities and we talk about the fact that 
to really get clear, uh, and of course it all derives out of clarity, when you get very clear and you hone and honor the spirit of who you truly are and you, you make the choice, because again, I believe it's based on choice, to tune out the background noise, you know, all the false beliefs and concepts that tend to keep us stuck and impede our ability to really step into our own personal unique greatness. We talk about, um, you know, deconstructing and deprogramming and all the things that society will generally up until we figure out that we want to be more of an individual. We feel a calling. We feel an inner voice intuitively, something that says, okay, this isn't congruent. Whatever it is people feel that I should be doing, the things that I should like, the things that I should be spending my time and attention on, you know, that's just not for me, whether it's people going to school or opting to do something quite different with their lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when when we talk about deconstructing and we talk about deprogramming, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people will incorporate uh a whole bunch of different schools of thought. Uh, they will incorporate to the degree that they sponge up and seek out mentorship. So when we look at your journey of having been apprenticed by your dad for 10 years, maybe you can maybe explain, you know, why 10 years specifically or there, is there no rhyme or reason? What what had to take place and transform and shift within yourself for within that period of 10 years for you to feel and for your dad to feel as though you were ready? Well, the 10 years was an apprenticeship with my grandmother. My grandmother was the one that trained me for those 10 years uh, mm-hmm. from the age of 14 mm-hmm. to the age of 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mostly it was it was the apprenticeship because I was at school. My father took me on as his apprentice when I was 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he didn't want to undo was my motivation for school. I, I have a very strong desire to go to school. If, I'll be honest with you. If I had the chance of being a, a, in school the rest of my life, I would do it because I love <laughs> it. I, I, you know, to this very day, I read books and I do read. My favorite subject is history. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that my father wanted me to do is to not lose that motivation because you're right about deconstructing and uncoding. My father just simply calls it unlearning. To unlearn all the things that has subjugated our will. And not, we've corrupted knowledge because we're attached to the need to be right. You know, that's part of our domestication. Now domestication is a system of reward and punishment by which we, we model the behavior of an individual. If we live up to the expectation, we get the reward. And if we don't live up to the expectation, we get the punishment. And since we are emotional beings, that reward feels like love, which feels like acceptance, or basically vice versa. And the and the punishment feels like rejection and the lack thereof of love. It's the way we've learned conditional love. So during those ten years, I learned from my grandmother. My grandmother was the my teacher, and the way I did it is to translate everything she did. You know, when she was in session, when she gave a lecture, when she gave a sermon, when she did a healing, I would do my very best to translate for her. That was it, to learn from her and to learn how to listen to her and to have her voice be the voice inside my own head, to learn how to meditate in certain ways. She was the spearhead of my family. And in going back to your question, how long does it take? Well, in in that case, it took 10 years because that was how long I was at school. And the extra year after college, because I graduated when I was 22, 23 just shy of it. So I continued a year and a half into it, and then I stopped with my grandmother, and I went full flesh with my father, <laughs> who is a totally different teacher. He He's a teacher of experience. You know, he set up a situation, and he he had me figure it out. You know, that's how I, that's what I say. He taught me through reason. Mm-hmm. Figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. So what I mean, what, what this all comes down to is one, one of the things that we, do in our tradition is to unlearn, to let go of the rules or conditions, actually more conditions that subjugate our will. Mm-hmm. Conditional love. All the things that fuel our conditional love. And little by little, we are able to uh, uncorrupt knowledge because that's what happens when, we're, when we get so attached to a belief. We begin to corrupt it and distort it. You know, my grandmother used to say throughout my apprenticeship, do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? And when knowledge controls you is that I believe is so strong that it controls your yes and your no. When you control knowledge, you know 
that knowledge is constructed by your agreement. You know, at the root of every belief we have, there is a yes. For example, a belief only exists for as long as you say yes to it. As soon as you change that yes into a no, it ceases to exist, which which means that our beliefs or ideas or concepts changes with agreement. Like the phrase, I live in a red state. In the 1950s, that meant that you lived in a socialist communist state and fighting wars, depending who you tell that to. Fast forward to 2016, I live in a red state means that you live in a state that's conservative Republican or votes conservative Republican and fighting wars, depending who you say that to. But the phrase remained the same, but the meaning changed because the society changed, the country changed, culture changed, time passed. Mm-hmm. In 66 years, so much has changed that a phrase can change. Now, if you can understand that concept, if we understand that concept, then we can see how our concept of beauty has changed, of love has changed, of democracy, of love. Basically, all, this, all these beliefs, especially that of beauty, you know, would the image of Marilyn Monroe still be considered beauty in 2016? And would mm-hmm. the concept of, of beauty in 2016 be the same in 1816 or 1716? And the answer is no, because time and culture changes. What we consider beautiful now will be dramatically different in 50 years or 60 years. And that's because we evolve, we change. So we can say from that point of view, knowledge, the function of knowledge is to be a mirror that reflects life as is. So knowledge is, when it describes life as is, it's the truth. When it doesn't, when it becomes the distorted, is, is when that corruption happens, when that distortion happens, that it's no longer reflecting life, which means that the term, the definition, no longer reflects life. For example, I live in a red state in 1960 reflected that truth to say I live in a communist or socialist state, and nowadays it's not true. It, it means something different. So with that point of view, the deconstruction or the unlearning is basically becoming aware, one, that we are the root of what gives power to those beliefs or ideas or concepts that knowledge is subject to agreement, even when it's reflecting the truth. That's one reasons why I love Neil deGrasse Tyson's expression, the truth exists whether you believe in it or not. Beautiful, mm. perfect expression. Absolutely. So, yeah, so from that point of view, you can say that one of the things that we in our tradition, uh, what, I, what my grandmother taught me and what my father has taught me and his my ancestors from that point of view, is that the same energy I use to move my legs, to move my arms, is the same energy I use to create a thought. And at the root of every belief I have, there is a yes. So to be impeccable with the word, for example, the word is an empty symbol whose definition is completely subject to my agreement. But what gives that word meaning is the intent that animates this body, that animates this mind, that gives that agreement powers, my yes, my intent. So Mm -hmm. I can change that a little bit to say, be impeccable with your intent, because it's your intent that gives meaning and power to the word. Love that. Love that. So profound. Well, one thing I... That's a complete uh, deconstruction of it, because you, you bring it down to the very essence of it. What mm-hmm. gives our beliefs, our ideas, our word power? And that's us. And to say, what gives my love power? Well, it's me because I'm alive. If I wasn't alive, my love would not exist. But my love exists because I am alive. Beautiful. So well put. Let me go back to something that you said I'd like to touch upon, Miguel. So when you talk about... um unconditional love. I've had many thought leaders on this show and we've talked quite extensively about that subject matter specifically. And some people would argue that outside of, for example, being a parent and feeling and understanding that um, tangible, intangible, unconditional love that you have for your child, a lot of people would argue that that's not necessarily possible 
to feel with another human being, no matter how self-actualized you might be yourself as an individual, no matter how much work you've done on yourself, uh, no matter how committed you are fiercely to always improving and honing and being the best version of yourself. But because we're all on different individual paths and because everybody's operating at a different level of self-awareness and because we all have a different infrastructure of support mechanisms that will either support or debilitate where it is we are or choose to be in our lives, is it really possible, in your opinion, um, to unconditionally love other people or unconditionally be loved by other people when we see, uh, when we see how divisive this world can be, the culture, the political culture, and I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole per se, um, but when you look at all the things um, that are happening in our world, call it climate-related, call it humanity, call it all of these combined things that make people struggle with the, the, the battle of, you know, are we still inherently good? Are we still, you know, more unified and more united as a people than we are divided you know how do you how do you speak to really unconditional love when we know that we exist and live within a world of so many people who have ongoing challenges and things are conditional and that's indicative of you know the mirroring effect you know what you see out there through the filter and the lens it's indicative of what's going on inside of yourself okay yes the answer very simple is yes it is possible and First, I have to explain the whole concept because your question has a lot of questions in it. Yeah, I'm very layered. I'm very abstract. It's it's a complex, but it's actually very simple at the same time. All right, Mm -hmm. first things first. Uh, We just finished talking about how uh, a word is an empty symbol whose definition is subject to agreement, right? All right, so love is just a word. That's just for the sake of conversation here that love means it's the energy that allows a bond to exist between two people, as well as a bond between myself. It's the energy that creates a bond, mm-hmm. an emotional bond, an energetic bond, whatever you want to call it, but it's a bond. So love is an empty symbol and it has that definition. That's the ability to have a bond. Okay. Now, like I said before, love exists because I exist. My mm-hmm. emotions, my body exists. I'm not my body. I'm the energy that gives life to my body. My mind is uh, only there until I live. So my love is also there while I live. So love is that bond. Unconditional and conditional. So you can already see the corruption right there. You have two different points of view. Domestication, like I was saying before, is a system of reward and punishment that you live up to expectation, you get the reward, and that feels like acceptance, that feels like love, and the punishment is feels like you're rejected and the lack thereof of love. That's how we, we can say we've learned conditional love, that if you want to be worthy of love, you have to live up to my expectation. You have to live up to my point of view. That is the world that we live in. Yes, you, you, that part, you are definitely correct in the sense that we were born into a world where conditional love is the main form of love. That's all we've known. Mm-hmm. Unconditional love is something we were born with and somewhere along the line we lost, which is that we give that bond freely to everyone. Of course, we have uh, danger, of, uh, stranger danger that if, if as soon as we no longer trust someone, we retract it. So there's a point where we're able to give that bond and then subtract it. Now, this is where a lot of confusion usually comes in. To love someone unconditionally, to me, simply means this. The willingness to see someone for who they are. The willingness to see them, because that's what unconditional love really expresses. Because conditional love, in contrast, is I only want to see what I want to see. If you live up to my expectation, then you're worthy of love. But if you do not live up to my expectation, if you do not live up to that projected image I have of you or of myself, then you're worthy of the punishment and the rejection. So conditional love right there is to only see what we want to see. So we're constantly judging others for not living up to the expectation. Whenever we judge someone, we're punishing them for agreements they never made, but we're forcing them to make the agreement through the punishment. That's the function of a judgment, to judgment to the point where they say they're wrong and I'm right and they subjugate to my will. 
That's that's the nature of conditional love. Unconditional love is the willingness to see someone for who they are and see them as someone who has the complete capacity to say yes and no to the things they want to say yes and no to. Now, here's where another corruption comes in or distortion. Let me use the word distortion better. Mm-hmm. Uh, domestication, a system, you know, my dad, when my, my son was born, he looked at me and says, Miguel, Susan, that's my wife's name, you created a beautiful boy. Now domesticate him. And we're like, what? The, the author of the four agreements is asking me to domesticate <laughs> his grandson. And he says, figure it out. Like I said before, that's how he teaches me. Mm-hmm. So after a lot of work, I've come to the conclusion of this. It's impossible not to domesticate someone. Because my father said to me, like my father says, if you don't domesticate them, someone else will. Mm. The, the reason why I say it's impossible is because there's a distortion of what we perceive as domestication. You see, life domesticates us, but it's different. It's called action-reaction. For every action we take, there is a consequence. For example... I live now near in Reno, near near a few miles away from Donner's Pass. And the reason why Donner's Pass has his name is because of a very, mm, you can say, awful period or moment. A, a Donner party went through the pass trying to go to California, and they got stuck in winter. And because they were unprepared, they ended up eating each other. Mm. And they had in order to survive. Now... If you know you live in a, an environment where a winter is that harsh, then in the spring, in the summer, and in the fall, you do the work that allows you to survive winter. You prepare the house, you gather the rations, you get the firewood, you pre- prepare the house, you plant the food, you harvest the food. You do all this work that, so when winter comes, you will be prepared. Mm-hmm. If you do not take that work, and you don't do any of it, then your winter is going to be very, very rough. That's the consequence. So action, reaction. We live in also a society that reflects that. If I don't pay my bill, the electricity that I'm using right now to talk to you will be not there. So Mm -hmm. the consequence for my action of not paying my bill is not no electricity. But if I pay my bill, the consequence is that I'm here to talk to you. So a a consequence can be both negative and positive or good or bad or just simply a consequence I want. So since I want electricity, I pay the bill and the consequence is that. So there is the thing, action, reaction. For every action we take, there's a consequence. The corruption or the distortion we have made with conditional love is that we use conditional love as a motivator. If you don't live up my, to my expectation as a consequence, I won't love you. And mm-hmm. we hold it as this punishment so we can control the behavior of someone else. And that's how well, the distortion comes in. That's what domestication or the corruption of domestication has become. That we use the motivator to uh, make something happen or to make someone do something is our love, our affection. But if we love someone unconditionally, well, one of the things is, for example, my son... I love you very, very much. But if you don't do your homework, the consequence is you're going to fail your grade. Or if you don't do your chores, the consequence is you're not going to play with your iPad nor your drums. Do I love you? Oh, of course I love you. Mm -hmm. But you will experience the consequence. That's respect. And that same respect I have for him, I have for myself because I can't give what I do not have. Absolutely. So to have unconditional love for myself is one the willingness to see myself for who I am and have the respect for myself that I am responsible for my own choices and I am respect myself for me to experience the consequences of my own choices. That's what unconditional love is. Conditional love, on the other hand, is like having this this blackmail or this uh, this thing hanging over you. If you don't do this, then you won't get the reward. And at that point, it stops being about personal freedom. It starts being about subjugation. So mm-hmm. from that point of view, from that argument, the answer is yes. It's a, it's very easy to love my son and my daughter and my, my wife unconditionally. For example, let me use that example. Um, say you have a partner. You're married to someone. And you love this person unconditionally, you, which means to, you see your partner or your beloved for the person who or he or she is. 
and you respect their choices, but all of a sudden you find out that they, that person cheated on you. Mm-hmm. And you have the emotional strong reaction and the anger, which is, of course, justified and normal. Of course, it hurts. And then you say to the person, you know, I forgive you, but I'm going to have to break up with you. What? I thought you said you forgave me. How can you say that and still break up with me? Well, yes, I forgive you. I'm not going to use this as to hurt you. I'm not going to have emotional poison with you. But my trust in you has been broken, and that's one of my deal breakers. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to let go. Now, deal breaker. I I use that example from Samantha Jones from Sex and the City. I love that expression. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I respect myself so much that I know what it is to respect myself and I know what are my boundaries, what are my lines. They're they're not conditions. It's just a line where I realize I'm going against myself and I'm disrespecting myself, not from the point of view of ego, mind you, Mm -hmm. because the function of ego is to keep the illusion alive. Right. And, And the boundary of ego and respect is very blurred because it's very hard to know where the line is because you don't know yourself. You, you only know an illusion. But mm-hmm. when you know yourself and you respect yourself, that line is very clear. You will know the line of what I like and what I don't like and what hurts me and what doesn't hurt me. And this hurts me. That's mm-hmm. a line. Okay. When someone crosses the line, for example, in this situation, I describe, okay, I forgive you, but I'm going to have to break up with you. That's the consequence for your action. I respect your action and you're completely free, whatever you do, whatever you want, just as I am, and I'm going to let go. Now, someone else will say, you know what? Okay, fine. Do you want to stay together? Yes. Do I want to stay together? Yes. Okay. For as long as we both say yes, now it's time to renegotiate this relationship. Let's renegotiate it. What do we want? What we don't want? Well, I don't want this. I want, and you're able to do that, but it comes from that answering yourself. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. And the only way to know that is to know yourself. That's unconditional love. And mm-hmm. to share that with someone, to see my husband or my wife, is to see them for who they are, respect them to make their own choices, and respect them enough to, for them to experience their own consequence, that in a moment when a boundary is crossed or a line is crossed or a deal breaker has been mm-hmm. crossed, then at that moment, the first person to respond is going to be me. What do I want? Once I know what I want, I'm able to say that. Well, I want to stay in this relationship. No, I don't want to stay in this relationship. And I don't want to carry the emotional poison that comes with this. So sometime, sometime once asked, someone asked me to that, how do I raise a child with, un, with unconditional love and no consequences? And I'm like, that's the that's the mistake we make. Mm-hmm. Unconditional love is about respecting those consequences. Conditional love, the consequences are punishments, not consequences. We punish them because they're not living up to what we think they should be. And mm-hmm. there's the distortion. There's the corruption. So going back to the original answer, the question is, yes, it's very easy to give unconditional love because... I have unconditional love for myself, which means I see myself for who I am. I don't pretend to be something I am not. I respect myself to make the choices in my life and respect myself to experience the consequences. And when I have that respect for myself, it's very easy to share that. Another image I have of that is imagine that your love is a river and you're the source of that river. So conditional love is putting dams all across that riverbed, across that path, and only opening up the gates for water to flow only if certain conditions are met. And sometimes you only only open it for just a little bit of trickle of water. But mm-hmm. unconditional love is not to put any dams across that river and let it flow. And it'll flow as freely because I'm free. If someone has that crosses that line of a deal breaker and I'm going to get mad and I'm going to get angry. You know, I say, well, you know, I still respect you. You're st- I, the, right now I'm not going to be around you, but I'm not going to close the door and I'm not going to burn the bridges. You know, we'll see what happens when my emotions settle, but I'm not going to say goodbye to you. 
I will walk away and I have walked away from people. Sometimes I've, I have the complete awareness that my no is just as powerful as my yes. And there are times when that no is important because one, it gives me time to heal. It gives me time to settle down and allows me time to see what I want in life. And when I'm ready, I'll say yes and no. And, you know, there's people in my, in my life that, you know, I still haven't said hello to in a long, long time, not only because we're, I'm angry at them. It's just that time just took us in different directions. And I respect that. Some, some people still see me in their, with the emotional wound and some people I still see in a way that, you know, uh, that relationship is just not ready to reintroduce because the wounds that we both have with one another are still there. Mm-hmm. But I respect their choices. I respect their ability and I wish them the best. Well, I, I, I certainly appreciate all the metaphors and the analogies that you've used to discern all that and break it down for us. That was very helpful, Miguel. I certainly appreciate that. What I would like to ask you, I mean, I've, there's so many questions that I have. The one that springs to mind at the moment is, you know, for somebody who is as introspective as you are, somebody who is as thoughtful a human being as you are, and for somebody who certainly walks their talk and implements all of the agreements into their life, is there one agreement in particular that you uh, may admittedly feel more challenged by on a more consistent basis than the others, no matter to what degree it's already incorporated, incorporated into your life or to your DNA, but one that you feel the most challenged by? I love that question. It's one of the oldest questions I get. In, in fact, I actually talk about it in my lectures quite a bit. When, uh, even before I wrote my book, I used to get that question, which one of, which one of the agreements was the most difficult one to follow? And I used to answer either being impeccable with my word or taking things personal. It was always back and forth, back and forth. And then I realized why it was difficult. I was pretending to be something I am not. I was domesticating myself with the four agreements. Have you, if, if you've ever judged yourself for taking things personal, if you've judged yourself for making an assumption, if you make, judge yourself, for not being impeccable with the word or not doing your best, then welcome to the club. We've used the four agreements to domesticate ourselves and we've corrupted them to to become the four conditions of our personal freedom. And, you know, for example, my name is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I know, don't take things personal. Don't make, always do your best. Don't make assumptions. I forgot the fourth agreement. Oh no, how can I call myself Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.? And the downward spiral of self-judgment kicks in right there. And the judgment of like, how can I call myself Miguel Ruiz Jr.? That's domestication right there. Oh yeah. Don't make assumptions. There it is. That's the word. Be impeccable with the word. So one of the things that I, in how you describe them, I, I look at myself and honestly is that I become aware that in my past, I've used the four agreements to domesticate myself. And there lies the answer to your question. Which one was the hardest one to follow? What was the one that I was pretending to be something I'm not? For example, let's not take, take something personal, you know. Mm-hmm. That, that one when I was much younger, I, it was difficult. Now, how do I change it? Well, first, like anything, like any alcoholic or drug addict, and I use this because it's a beautiful expre- example of the truth, is to accept the truth. You know, a moment of clarity without any action is just a thought that passes in the wind. But a moment of clarity that's followed by action becomes a pivotal moment in our life. Is when we become aware of the truth. So like an alcoholic or drug addict, I go, hello, my name is Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. And I do take things personally. <laughs> I do make assumptions. Sometimes I'm not impeccable with my word. Sometimes... Be skeptical, but learn to listen. The fifth agreement, and sometimes I do them, but do my best. Just ask my wife; she's my witness. Mm-hmm. I stop pretending to be something I am not, and I accept the truth. Mm-hmm. Now that I accept the truth, then how do I use the four agreements? How do I use not taking things personal? For example, that's the one we're going to focus on. Well, I start with the truth. I take things personally, and part of loving myself unconditionally is to accept the truth of who I am at this very moment. You see, at this very moment, I am the sum of every choice that I've ever made. Mm-hmm. And at this, and I'm also the youngest I will ever be. 
This okay. is who I am right now. So at this very moment, you can say, I take things personal and I accept that. And I accept myself. I'm not going to punish myself. I accept it. But then I pick up a book and I read the chapter of how not to take it personal. And I'll share a story with you. To me, not taking things personal simply means this, that I accept the truth that I'm only responsible to the tips of my own fingers, that I'm not responsible beyond it, that I'm not responsible to the tips of your fingers. You're responsible for that, and you're responsible for your own perception. To me, that's what not taking things personally is, to not take responsibility for someone else's will, only my own. And with that, let me share a story with you. Uh, about six, seven years ago, uh, my father and I did a, a workshop or a lecture in Rochester, New York, and our host put, it up, put, put us up in a very nice hotel. And when we finished the lecture, we went back to the hotel and we saw that they have a very nice restaurant. And people were dressed very nice, you know, suits and ties, and yeah, it, it, people were dressed nice. My dad says, hey, let's go grab a bite to eat. And I said, okay, well, let's go upstairs and freshen up a bit because I wanted to look you know, nice too. Mm-hmm. So my dad said, Oh, okay. So he, we went upstairs, changed. I, I fixed myself up, looked very smart. I looked nice. I went downstairs and my dad hadn't come down yet. So I waited and I saw people coming towards the restaurant going, people dressed nice. And then eventually the elevator doors opened and out comes my dad in pajamas <laughs> and slippers. And I'm going, oh no, it's one of those learning lessons. Don't bite, don't bite, don't bite. You know, I'm going this like a mantra in my mind. Don't bite, don't bite. My dad walks straight up to me and says, is there anything wrong? And I said, nope, nope, nothing wrong, nothing wrong. <laughs> Are you sure? Nope, nope, not going to bite, not going to bite. So I do my best to show that it's not bothering me. Mm-hmm. So, and then he says, okay, fine, let's go to the restaurant. So he starts walking, and I'm walking behind him like a an embarrassed teenager whose dad has already embarrassed me one more time. Mm-hmm. So him, my dad, and my, and my dad's girlfriend walking towards the restaurant, and at the restaurant there is no sign that says any dress code. There's no dress code. So the the hostess walks up, looks at us, and says, "Table for three." And I said, "Yeah, three." And she says, "Okay, follow me." Very professional, very good. And as we're walking, she walk, happens to walk us through the middle of the restaurant. And I can start seeing people's head turning to look at him. And I can see of heads turning and I can hear the murmurings. And I am so embarrassed. I, you know, that self-conscious, I'm so self-conscious. And I'm walking towards it. And my dad, before he sits down, looks at me and says, is there anything wrong? And I said, nope, nope, nothing wrong. So he's, you know, we all sit down, a hostess gives us the menu, we walk away, and I'm still listening to the voices around me. You know, people are talking and looking. And My dad looks over at me and says, are you sure nothing is wrong? And I say, nope, nope, nope. So my dad grabs the menu and he's looking for his reading glasses, but he can't find them. So he asks his girlfriend and borrows hers. He puts on the glasses which are not his and makes his eyes bug out. <laughs> and at that point, I lost it. I kind of, <laughs> my poker face gave way and I showed my embarrassment and my dad pounced. What's wrong? And I went, because I, the jig is up. Pop, come on, pop. This is a very nice restaurant. People are dressed nice. They're dressed lovely. They're here to entertain. Here you are dressed in your pajamas. They're going to think that you are this eccentric Howard Hughes type of guy. And he looks at me with that look and he says, Miguel, do you disrespect me so much that you don't think that I can experience my own consequences that you have to, you have to pay for it yourself with your embarrassment? Mm. Do you disrespect me so much that you don't think I'm capable of experiencing my own consequences? And with that, it's, it, that's the lesson of not taking things personal is that moment is like, you're right. Like, I'm embarrassed. Wow. And uh, that, that idea of birds of a feather fly together or I'll tell you who you are by who you hang out with, that embarrassment 
You know, that, that embarrassment that we have with other people is one of the things that drives us to domesticate someone because that person represents us. That person, mm-hmm. that behavior, that belief, how they behave reflects on us. So you better behave. So mm-hmm. you can say that's a driver that makes us try to domesticate someone in order for them to behave, not to embarrass us. And that's the point when I realized, well, not taking things personal, at first, when I first learned it, it was about other, other people. But then at that moment, I realized that it's me. Not to take my own words personally, because it's me who's making that assumption. It's me who's taking on responsibility for my father's actions that I have to pay for it with my own embarrassment. Right. So that's the example of how not to take it personal. So I accept the fact that I take it personal, and now I know how not to take it personal. But the only way to apply it is in the present moment. I can't go back in the past and change a yes to a no, no to a yes, nor can I go to the future. I have to see who I am right now. So what triggers me? And that's where the being honest with ourselves really comes in. What triggers me to take things personal? And in this day and age, there's a guy on Facebook that makes me go, grrr, found a trigger. I can find many, many more, but I mm-hmm. hear some trigger. Mm-hmm. Now that I know what triggers me, now that I accept the truth that I take things personal and I know how not to, now it's time to face it. So I log on, I scroll, and I find his name. The moment of truth is here. I scroll down a bit more. Oh, it's a doozy. <laughs> I have a choice of that very moment. If I take it personal, it's because I want to take it personal. But mm-hmm. I've also read this book, How Not to Take It Personal. I am free to say yes to either one. That's personal freedom. I'm mm-hmm. free to say yes to taking it personal. And I'm also free to say yes to not taking it personal. And when I say yes to not taking it personal, that's when that agreement becomes alive. Because I used it as knowledge that informed my choice. But I'm the one making the choice. Absolutely. Love that. I need to ask you this question. Yep. So if if we were to take the five agreements and parallel that with, say, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and if you had to, if it was possible, or I'm not sure if you feel it's all mutually exclusive, but if there had to be only one agreement that you feel could continually still rise humanity, still elevate people within the core of themselves and you could only choose one and it would be one that would perhaps be more so encompassing of all the others individually. Is there one that you feel is, is pivotal, more crucial? Be impeccable with the word. Yes. And here's the reason why. Uh, now here's the thing. Some people have told me that they think that being impeccable with the, with the word is to always say the truth. And I'll be telling you, I've heard so many people use the truth with so much poison that they're not being impeccable in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So let me simplify it. To not to be impeccable with the word is to use your word to liberate yourself, to love yourself unconditionally. To not be impeccable with the word is to use your word to domesticate yourself and to love yourself conditionally. As simple as that. That's the contrast that allows me to explain that concept very beautifully. To be impeccable with the word is to use the word to love myself unconditionally and to share that unconditional love and to express my personal freedom, which is that I'm alive, and to not use it impeccably is simply to use my own words to go against myself, to judge myself for not living up to an image that doesn't exist, to love myself conditionally and loving others conditionally. So that's the contrast. And that's why I say this one's the most important one, because... It's the moment where we all stop pretending to be something we are not and see ourselves as the living beings that we are. Human beings that have the full capacity to go in any direction in life. And when we're able to see each other's humanity is when we're able to respect each other completely because when we don't see each other as human beings, that we only see each other as personification of an idea that we don't either agree with or disagree with, then it's easy to see how people can kill and murder someone because they're not killing a human being. They're killing an idea, a belief, a concept. 
and, and it's the vitriol that we heard in the last several years, and we'll, apparently we'll be hearing it for some time. But it'll only be until we let go of the lies, we let go of the distortion, where we're willing to listen to one another. Mm-hmm. Because when we stop and listen to one another, that's when we're able to see life from someone else's point of view and compassion comes in. So to me, that's the essence of being in trouble with my word. And Mm -hmm. since I'm the constant in every relationship I am in, it starts with myself. How am I going to use my word to heal the wounds of my own conditional love in my life? How Mm -hmm. am I going to use it to relate to the people in my life? How am I going to use it to navigate this world. And more importantly, how am I going to use it to inform my choice? Because yeah. I'm going to make a choice based on that word. Lovely. Well, let me ask you this, Miguel. So, you know, clearly my show, uh, my brand, my message, how I choose to live my life, it's all based on choosing to live fearlessly. So if you were to incorporate all your work, all your teachings, how you choose to navigate your own life, how would you feel or relate your message to my message in terms of living fearlessly? What does that mean to you personally? Well, it's to no longer corrupt fear. Mm-hmm. The function of fear is to keep us safe. That's real fear. If you have a rattlesnake in front of you, your body will either freeze, fight, or freeze. It'll secrete a hormone in our body that allows us to survive. That's what fear is. Fear allows us to survive. It it keeps us safe. But we can abuse fear in the way we can abuse drugs and alcohol. For example, false evidence appearing real, that concept. We go to a movie theater and we watch The Exorcist or Blair Witch Project or whatever movie makes you afraid now. The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. And we watch that and it's not real. But our body is so engaged in it that we also feel fear and we experience that adrenaline, that hormones that our body secretes in order to flee, fight or flight or freeze uh, at that moment. So our mind is a lot more powerful than any film or any uh, projection because just as the way we tapped into it when we we're watching the movie, we are able to tap into it every moment because our mind can project that with what's around the corner what's this what's that Mm -hmm. so that's you can say we're abusing fear in the way we're abusing alcohol or drugs we're using it because now we're addicted to that adrenaline to that to that hormone or whatever it is that that our body experiences and to come to that realization to come to peace with fear is to honor fear, fear one more time, to no longer abuse it in that way, to no longer project the image of fear or project it onto someone or some people or some situation and see what's really in front of us, the willingness to see once again what's in front of us and to no longer abuse our body with fear in the same way we use alcohol and drugs. In that point of view, you can, you can see that coming to peace with fear to, is to live fearlessly in life. It basically is that I no longer allow fear, that addiction to fear, to freeze me from, stop me from living life. That I'm going to use fear in the moments when life presents a danger in front of me, but when there's no danger, I don't tap into it. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Wow. Well, let me ask you this as well, uh, Miguel. So, I mean, clearly, you know, you're a student of life. You're, you soak up all this stuff and, um, all these principles, things that have been imparted to you by your family through their apprenticeship, through their mentoring, their training. Uh, and I, I believe it's just incorporated into certain people's DNA. And I do believe it comes down to choice and choose in terms of how we choose to navigate our lives and the kind of energy we choose to immerse ourselves in. So, you know, what, what is it that you envision for yourself going forward? I mean, I know the importance of, of people, like-minded people like ourselves, who I refer to as tribe, to live in the present, to be in the present moment. But I also can recognize that you have a calling and you have a mission, which would be to impart your teachings and to resonate with as many people as possible so that they too can get clear and they too can love themselves and love their life. So 
looking ahead, you know, what else do you see on the horizon for yourself that you feel a calling to also equally do? Well, the, my main job, from my point of view, is being a father and a husband. That's mm-hmm. that's the main thing. That's the main gig in my life. Mm-hmm. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dad and my brothers. I to be in the present moment is to enjoy them when they're in front of me. That's mm-hmm. the gift. That's to enjoy life. In regards to teaching, you know, one of the things that I've learned throughout my teaching when I when I give a lecture, you know, there's people who stay in the seats and there's people who sometimes stand up and walk out. That's fine. When I was much, when I first started teaching, I used to do my best to keep them in their seats. You know, that that was the idea. That was focused. And then I realized my attention is not towards them. My attention is towards the people who are staying because they're giving me the opportunity to share. Mm-hmm. That, that's the biggest lesson. You see, as a teacher, one thing that I've come to realize that I am right and I am wrong at the same time. I say my words. And I give my words with all the clear, uh, with all the clarity and integrity I can give it. But because I don't control the perception of an individual, I am both right to the people who agree with me and I am wrong with the people who disagree with me. That's always going to be the case. So for me, my job is to give my word without clarity, without integrity that I have for myself. And the people who will give me the opportunity are the people who will resonate with what I say. Mm-hmm. So you can say that, yes, I have a desire to teach and share this with as many people as I can, but also realize, and this is what keeps me humble, that I can only say what I say to the people who resonate with what I say. I don't control that. I don't control who resonates with me, mm-hmm. but I do control how it resonates with me. And that is what gives what I say heart or love. Yes. Those who people who enjoy it, that like it, that get an aha moment from it or see a reflection of themselves or helps them in any way, shape or form. Well, that, that is them. And I respect them. I don't control that. They, you know, some people come to me and say how my books and my dad's books have shaped their life. But I realize I tell them, you know, we wrote the book, but you're the one who ran with it. So the change you see in your life, it's not us who changed it. You did. You just read our words and were inspired by it that you changed it. And that, you know, to be humble is to see and accept that truth. Beautiful. It. And that to me is important. So mm-hmm. I walk my walk because I use my words to inform my, form me and, and my choices and how I use it how I choose to engage my family, how I enjoy having that bond with people in my life. And I enjoy being in the present moment because of that. You know, I enjoy running. I enjoy working with my father. I enjoy the ability that I have to run a marathon, which I'm going to do in a couple of weeks. And I enjoy being a father. I enjoy being a husband. I I love my life. That's my point. That's That's... Mm-hmm. That's that's it. That's my intent to enjoy Beautiful. my life. Beautiful. Well, I certainly wish you well with that marathon. How oh, are you feeling you. about that? You've been training. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I ran Twenty miles on Monday, and I ran eight miles yesterday. And give, I was going to run six miles today, but I'm going to give my ankle a little bit more time to heal itself, so I'm going to run it tomorrow. But I'm enjoying it. I'm 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 loving it. You know, for me. Running a marathon is not those 26.2 miles on that particular Sunday, December 4th. It's a six-month thing, and in my case, a three-year thing, because it t- took me three years to get to this stage where my body can do what I'm, what I'm able to do today. And that's what's That's enjoyable. And that's well, you know, I love but- it. But that's not surprising because, again, you embody all the principles that you've spoken about, what, which you reflect about in your book. You know, it, it's, again, choice. It's also the agreements that you have with yourself and how you choose to incorporate that, how you choose to interpret that and navigate that. Um, but it's also mindset, right? You have a very well-balanced, healthy mindset. Yeah. And uh, so you've embraced these things that have been important to you to wish to endeavor to do. And you've pushed through the pain, obviously, oh, and the injury. So yeah. good for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so given that the fourth agreement 
uh, turned into a fifth agreement. Do you believe that with additional clarity, uh, with more experience, with more going deep within yourself, that it would be possible to birth yet a sixth agreement? Could there be a sixth agreement? Could that even exist? Or oh, do you there, there, well, and I, I don't mean, I don't mean uh, that in terms well, of, well, I don't mean that. Let's look at what the word agreement means. The, the, yes. the agreement is, is making the action of saying yes. That's mm-hmm. what agreement is. It's the moment or the action of saying yes. How I use my intent to say I'm the infinite possibility right now because I'm alive. And my yes is, allows me to go in a direction. Basically the word yes, that three letter word represents the moment where I choose to use the energy that animates this body, that animates this mind to manifest mm-hmm. something. And it's just as powerful as my no. My That two-letter word represents the moment where I choose not to use the energy that animates this body or animates this mind to manifest a single thing. My yes and my no, also known as my will. To have free will is to be able to say yes and no with a complete freedom of life. Mm-hmm. So in agreement, it's the action of saying yes. It's those things that I'm going to use my intent to manifest. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view... There's a six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twentieth. But at that point, this is personal. What are the things we're saying yes to? What do we want to create? For example, I, I'm 41 years old. I'm about to turn 41. And I can ask myself, how do I want my 40s to look like? And when I come with an image that I like and I say yes to it, that's when that agreement becomes alive because I use it to say yes to it. So from that point of view, the sixth agreement is the one we make with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So from that point of view, it can go in seven seven point four billion ways. Can you believe it? Right now, <laughs> there's seven billion four hundred something million people out there. It's crazy. It is. Yeah, it's, we're, mind, we're, it's mind blowing, actually. It's mind blowing. It's a little crazy, nervous, scary, but. You know, it's it's the reality of the moment. And because there's that many directions, each human can take it in every direction we want. That's why it almost feels like it's an infinite possibility. Mm-hmm. But that sixth agreement can be anything. So Well uh, and, and and what I was getting to and, and not to say that you haven't answered my question, I just want to make sure that I've been clear with my question. So, you know, I, I very much understand what you're talking about with the agreement and, you know, the power of word and the choice that comes out of that, you know, yeah, yes, and applying your intent to that. Um, there's no doubt based on what you've already endeavored to do that uh, there's an infinite amount of books still left within you and stories in which to write, uh, to produce tangible copies and to get out into the hands and the ears and the eyes and the hearts of everybody. I'm just wondering if in terms of the sixth agreement, the seventh agreement, you know, I'm just wondering in terms of to the degree that you've encapsulated or you feel that you've embody the core of what could essentially be all the possible ingredients or agreements if that could even be possible to extend that to the sixth agreement. Not that there couldn't be potentially other books written by you, but maybe going off in a bit of a different direction. But do you feel the fifth agreement has really spoken to the agreements, that that, that really is the crux of, of what you would define term to believe all that needs to exist within the agreements? Well, within my family so far, well, so far what we've written, there's uh, five agreements. I know my dad's done a course called Agreements for Life, and that comes up with even more. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 to me, that sixth agreement is just how life unfolds in front of you. You know, mm-hmm. you you find in life some a, a thing that allows you to function, and all of a sudden something that resonates. You know, right now, the, the, the agreements we have, be impeccable with the word, don't make assumptions, don't take things personally, always do your best, be skeptical, but learn to listen. Those are the five ones that I've learned. And as time progressed, my, uh, there was a six and seven in the sense that about life and death, which my father wrote a book, or just recently wrote about his autobiography about that. It's mm-hmm. about accepting life as a great teacher, but also accepting death as the great teacher it is. Because in reality, in life, the only two truths that exist is life and death, life and death, or manifest, unmanifest, manifest, unmanifest. I think it's that point of view. That's the one thing, the two things that truly exist. Everything else is just a point of view. Mm-hmm. 
So from that point of view, the sixth agreement, whatever that may be, at this point, we're going to say it's to that individual who chooses to make a sixth agreement. There you go. In our, <laughs> view, now in our family, we've made it. And I remember my dad, when we we're doing our apprenticeship, was the ability to learn from death and accept the fact that we are able to attach and detach to a certain point. That's the attachments. But that's what I've learned. And that's what I can say, the ability to attach and to let go when the moment is past, like now. Beautiful. Well, I just want to say, Miguel, it's it's been such a treat and such an honor to be speaking with you today. Um, you know, you're you're one of my favorite people out there in the world of what I like to sponge up. And I've read all your books and I've revisited your books at different times when I felt it was necessary to do so, hoping to establish a deeper meaning, a, a deeper understanding. Um, so for what you've done for me personally in my own uh, journey with personal development, personal growth, uh, I just want to thank you very much. You know, I, I've been very blessed to have many of who I would deem to be my intangible mentors appear as my guest on radio. And uh, I'm really, really blessed and really honored uh, that that we were able to do this interview because I truly look upon you as one of my intangible mentors. Oh, thank you, Lisa. You're, you're very kind. And thank you for all the work you're doing. You're, you're doing a wonderful job doing, doing everything you've been doing and sharing and sharing all the knowledge with all these teachers. So more power to you and enjoy the ride and have fun. Well, I appreciate that, Miguel. And maybe down the road, if there is a sixth agreement or whatever we call it, whatever we term it, you term it, uh, I'd love to have you back sometime, you know. And, uh, yeah, I because, you know, obviously you're one of these people who's committed to rapid growth. And out of that gets birthed all kinds of beautiful things and gifts that uh, you choose to share and impart with the rest of the world. So no doubt there's going to be a whole host of new things coming your way that would be lovely to have you back and to talk about that and share that with our listeners. If you're agreeable to doing so, and that's not to put you on the spot at this particular moment, but please know that that's an open standing invitation. Oh, thank you. I'd love to be in sure again. Uh, thank you. I'll definitely say yes to that. Okay, wonderful. Well, I just want to say to my listeners, once again, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day to join me here on my show, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Again, I go live every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific at uh, ctrnetwork.com. Uh, I just want to say this has been so many takeaways from this. I'm, I'm going to be getting off this call, uh, off this interview, and uh, a lot of really beautiful nuggets here, so I can't thank Miguel enough. Uh, if you have any show topic ideas or you wish to appear as a prospective guest on my show, kindly reach out to me at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. McDonald is spelled M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D. Alternatively, you can reach me by email at lisamcdonald13 at gmail.com. I'm all about the connection, so if there's anything I can do for you, don't hesitate to reach out. And again, thank you for everything. Love and gratitude to everybody. Lisa McDonald from Dundas, Ontario, Canada, saying all my best. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Living Fearlessly with your host, Lisa McDonald. Visit her at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.